Wow. It's our next to last Romans message. Paul's concluding mandates. And what we're going to see today um, is a very serious, a very pressing, a very, if you can be very imperative, a very imperative mandate that Paul is delivering to the church in Rome to try to get them to understand that what he's saying is surely very serious. So we in our last point of our outline, it's hard to believe that we've been through all this. And I know some of you are thinking it seems like we've been in this forever, but a lot of stuff here. Um, what we're going to read this morning is Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. And it never ceases to amaze me. I'm thinking, okay, this is just four verses. Ha! <laughs> yeah, just four verses. But there's so much in here. This is concentrated awesomeness. Um, what we're going to look at today is so timely for us as individuals and as a church, for the church of Jesus Christ overall. And that's what really impresses me over and over and over about the Word of God is that it is for now. As long as now is now, Don said this morning. And this word is, we don't need to change and find new truth because the truth that we have is not only relevant, but it is life-changing for us today here almost 2,000 years later. And what I want to ask you this morning is, how well do you know this truth? Now we've spent two years and a month in 16 chapters of Romans. And again, that's a long time, but how well do you know it? If I was to quiz you this morning... What if we quizzed you? Well, well, right, what if you quizzed me? I've got notes I can pull up. <laughs> I don't know about y'all. What if I ask you what Romans 4 was about? What if I ask you what Romans 9 was about? What if I ask you what Romans 12 was about? How familiar are you with not just Romans, but the 66 books that make up the Bible, the revealed Word of God. And, and again, we're not going to get into guilt and shame this morning, but it's a call and it's an exhortation. Do you know what you know? Because if you don't, there are dangers lurking around every corner. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. If you don't, we'll have it up here on the board for you. So if you would stand as we read the very words of God. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil." The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray. God, we welcome your Holy Spirit to be the master of ceremonies as we look into your word, to be our teacher, our comforter, our encourager, the convictor of our sins, and the power that we need to live these truths out. God, I pray that we would know His welcoming presence 
and that you would be glorified by what he teaches us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's start in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So we spent last week looking at a list of names, but we saw that it was a little more than just a list of names. Uh, Paul was asking the Romans to greet his friends and those people that he had worked with, that he had been in prison with, and others that he had known from other shared experiences. And that's the bulk of chapter 16. We even looked at the next uh, series there, 21 through 24, of the people who were with Paul, and we looked at names and people. But these four verses, and the final verse, which we'll look at in two weeks, are kind of a break in the roll call. And what do these verses here do in that break? Well, it's Paul appealing, pleading, begging the Romans to do something very specific. Now, if I were Paul and I had entrusted this lengthy letter filled with powerful doctrine to a group of people, I would be concerned, A, how they received it, B, how they processed it, how they learned it, and C, how they lived it out. Because this is not just a throwaway letter. Oh, it's a nice letter, Paul. Could you imagine? So he wants to know, did you receive it? Did you learn it? And are you going to do it? He's appealing to them. He's begging them to take what he has written, which are really a good solid framework, a good solid building block framework for the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. He has laid out explicitly and in great detail what it means to be right with God. And we said that was our main theme of Romans, how to be right with God. And is there anything more important? And in doing so, he has entrusted to them a very precious treasure, an alabaster box of sorts that he has broken and poured out among them. The doctrinal truths and instructions contained in Romans 1 through 15 are priceless. They're without compare and can therefore literally change lives and eternal destinies. They can be the difference between heaven and hell for individuals and groups. All of this is to say that this is a really, really big deal. So, he begs them to watch out for anyone who might teach something different than what he has taught them through this letter. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Which again, note, he doesn't exalt himself over them. He calls them brothers, right alongside himself, not below him. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. He's begging them to be on the lookout, to be vigilant for someone who might come in behind him and teach something different that would cause divisions among them or create obstacles in their progress. Which happened often in his ministry. Read Galatians. Look at the book of Acts. People came in behind him and said, I know Paul said this, but... But what are the two things that he points out here? 
He says to watch out for those who cause what? Divisions and create obstacles. So divisions and obstacles. Now what's that all about? Now the divisions part is pretty clear. If someone comes in from the outside or starts teaching from the inside, things that would split them, divide them, or adversely affect their oneness with Christ and with each other, then they are to see it as something that they should be watching out for. The oneness, the unity of the church is vital to its health overall and the health of the individual members of it. So anything that brings about division, schism, I don't like this church, so I'm going to leave. Watch out for that. Watch out for people who are saying, well, y'all don't teach what I like. I think you should teach this instead of this. Watch out, because that's divisive. And then you've got camps. Well, you've got the camp over here that believes this and the camp over here that believes that. How many times have you heard about churches splitting? How many of you have been part of that split? Painfully and woefully. And there's grace, praise God. But watch out for those who cause divisions within the body of Christ. Is Christ divided? Paul would say. So watch out for divisions. And then the obstacles part. Now that denotes the same that we saw back in Romans 14, and we'll reference Romans 14 again in a minute. Um, Putting obstacles, placing a stumbling block in the way of our brother that makes them fall. An obstacle is a stumbling block, a cause for stumbling. It's anything that would make someone fall. And, and, And what we're connoting there is that it trips them up in their faith. It causes people to stumble. Oh no, I didn't know that. Crush, fall, bloody knee, busted face. And their faith is laying there in shambles. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about obstacles. And then note that these divisions and obstacles are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And what's he talking about? What doctrine? Well, he just gave them 15 chapters of latent power and doctrine. This doctrine, this letter... This massive colossus of power that he penned for them to help raise support for his trip to Spain. Be on the lookout for those who would teach something contrary to or besides or in addition to this carefully laid out treatise that he's given them. They were to appeal to the words of the inspired apostle to see what is contrary to it. Anybody ever work with a plumb line? And you got that weight on the end of it. And whatever is contrary to the straight line made by the plumb line is out of plumb. And you get into your wall or whatever you're doing, you see it's crooked, you're like, it's got to come down because it's not true. And Paul's saying anybody that comes in and teaches divisive or obstacle-laying untruths are contrary to the doctrine that I have taught you. Watch out for these people. Watch out for these people. Be on the lookout for these people. They were to appeal to the words of the inspired apostle, and we are called to do the same thing today. Now, back to that Romans 14 thought for a second. All the time we spent, and some of you were here, some of you weren't, all the time that we spent on each one being convinced in his own mind, 
and giving preference to your brother in matters of non-essential convictions. Now, is this the same thing? No. Absolutely, positively not. What's the difference? Here, we are not talking about non-essentials. We're not talking about preferences about meat and days. We're talking about the things that are necessary for conversion and proper Christian progress in sanctification. Not meat and days as preference, but what is needful for being right with God. For example, if someone came in and said that in order to be saved, one has to keep the Jewish feasts, that is not a matter of preference. Now if they say, I prefer to keep the Jewish feasts, and it offends me that you don't, well, then you might dip into the Romans 14 deal. But if they come in and say, you have to keep the Jewish feasts in order to be saved, no, that's not non-essential. That's essential. That is doctrine. That is salvation. That is sanctification. And that is necessary. And Paul is in no way saying here to give preference to your brother who's teaching things contrary to the doctrine that I've given you. Quite the opposite. He is saying watch out for them. Because that is divisive. That is contrary to what is clearly taught here that a man is made right with God on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we could give a lot of examples. It would be hard to not see how this letter would either agree with it or refute it. There's a lot of those. And that's what they would be up against. Paul entrusted to them the work of making sure they held fast to what he, as an inspired apostle, had taught them. He called them to be watching out for divisions and obstacles. And what if they come in contact with an example of these divisions and obstacles? What were they to do? Look at the last two words of the verse. Avoid them. Read it again. Avoid them. Now what does that mean? Now I want to give you the, the, the unofficial definition. Eklino, eklino. Three occurrences in the New Testament. Eschew. Avoid and go out of the way. It means to turn aside, to deviate from the right way and course, to turn oneself away, to turn away from, to keep aloof from one society, or to shun one. Avoid them. Turn oneself away from them. Keep aloof from them. Shun them. Now, that's pretty plain, right? So if somebody is in our midst and they are teaching divisive things, if they are laying obstacles to trip people up in their faith, what are we to do? Avoid them. Avoid them. Now, does that mean that at the first sight of question or uncertainty or unclarity or even direct divisive things or obstructing things, that we should just turn our backs on people. Now the Bible interprets the Bible. Paul gives us a little clearer instruction here in Titus 2, 10-11. He says, and this is picking up in a list, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God. Oh, this is the wrong verse, y'all. You ever do that? 
I do that all the time. You've seen that. I do it all the time. Let's see if I can find the right. It's in Titus. So that's a small book, so we've got a small sample. It may be 3, 10 through 11. Let me find it. Give me a moment. Can somebody play some like... Uh... Oh, yeah, it is. It's 3, 10 through 11. He says this in Titus 3, 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So what's the rule? Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. So it's not like, oh, divisive, get out of here. Like we're the doctrine police and anything. Somebody said something that I don't know about or I don't understand. Get out of here. I'm going to avoid you. Don't talk to me. But it's somebody who says, well, you know, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. Hey, brother, we, we know that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. A couple weeks later, that person says, yeah, but there's many ways to heaven. Brother, Jesus is the only way. And then you hear him whispering to somebody else, you know what, I really don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. You're done. Avoid them, having nothing to do with them. After warning him once or then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Why? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, we'll talk about this more later. Backbone check. Do you know what you know well enough to stand up and say, what you are saying is not doctrinally sound? Now, Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's a pretty easy one. No, there's many ways to heaven. No, sir, the Bible does not teach that there are many ways to heaven. It says Jesus is the only way. Do you have the backbone and the know-how to confront somebody and give them a first or a second warning? And then we'll talk later. Do you have the backbone to avoid them if they won't change their minds? Hmm. Something to think about. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, why? Why would we avoid such a person? Look at verse 18, which is correct on the screen. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Why avoid them? Because they're slick as a nickel, y'all. Slick as turkey snot on the back of a wet nickel, or I don't know. Somebody got a good... You ever know anybody that's real good at that? I, I, you know, they're like, what? These, these folks are slick, so we have to avoid them. They're good at what they do. And there is a very real danger in dealing with them. The first word of verse 18 is the theme of Romans, for. No, I'm just, it's not the theme, but it's in there a lot. Avoid them for... Avoid them because such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They aren't God's people. So now get a hold of this so they don't belong in the church. I want you to take a second or two and chew on that before you swallow it. It can help give us a picture of the purpose of the church when we see this. In the midst of the congregation, when the church is assembled... Are they to structure their time together to conduct outreach? 
No. Are they to construct their time and format their services in order to refute false teachers? No. Avoid them. I'm not going to sit here and point somebody out and say, so-and-so was saying last week this and that. No. It's what Jason said this morning before the music. We're not going to dwell, and we'll get more on this later. We're not going to dwell on what's wrong. We're going to teach the truth. So I'm not going to spend the time up here when I should be addressing God's people through God's Word, having a conversation or a dialogue with somebody who's saying something false. What's the purpose of this meeting? To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's why we meet here. That's why we wouldn't consider ourselves seeker-sensitive. Sorry. Not sorry. It's not the purpose of the church. It's not the purpose of this meeting. Are unbelievers welcome here? Absolutely. Unless they start teaching false doctrine. Then they're not welcome here. And hopefully, somebody that's not saved, somebody that would refute what we're trying to teach up here, is so uncomfortable in the midst of the Bible being proclaimed that they can't be comfortable here. I don't want an unbeliever being comfortable here. I don't want a divisive person being comfortable here. I want them to hear the Bible so much it makes them gag. And they say, I ain't going back there. All they talk about is a Bible. Praise God. Avoid these divisive, obstacle-laying people because such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They aren't believers. And they are to be avoided by the people of the church. If they don't serve the Lord, but teach things that lead to division and obstacles, they are to have no place in the church. And we'll talk more about that later. But it's clear here. Avoid them because they don't serve Jesus. So who do they serve? Or actually a better question is, what do they serve? They serve their own appetites. Some versions say they serve their own bellies. They are in the church circle, they are on the religious circuit to get fat and to enjoy themselves. Watch out for these hucksters. Avoid them. Because they don't serve Jesus, they just want to get rich, and they want to enjoy themselves at your expense and they are good at what they do. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Anybody know any smooth talkers? Folks who can be whispering, I love you, while they're slipping the knife into your back? And that's probably an overblown illustration, but it paints the picture well. Smooth talkers' lips drip with honey, but there's venom mingled in with that honey. And smooth also implies that it feels good to the hearer. Oh, that's smooth. That's nice. The compound Greek word for smooth talk means literally good words. And we like it when people say good stuff to us. So it's not just Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. It's God wants you to be happy. Really? I like that. Tell me more. Tell me, tell me more about how God wants me to be happy. Tell me more about how, yeah, God wants me to enjoy my best life now. Be careful. Be careful. It feels good to the hearer. Good words. 
and it stimulates good feelings in those who hear them. And the word for flattery is eulogius, where we get our word eulogy from. Everybody heard a good eulogy? It's when somebody stands up and says all those nice things about somebody that's dead. Sometimes they're true, sometimes they're not. But you're not going to say something bad about somebody that's dead at their funeral. You say good words about them. And that's what this word here means. Smooth talk and flattery. I like you. You know what? I think, I think God has something more for you than what's here at this church. I think God wants to give you a platform bigger than just this little group of people somewhere. Yeah, I think you're right. Thanks, man. I'm going to go look for another church. Watch out. And the trap snaps and you're caught. Language artfully adapted to captivate the hearer. Fair speaking, fine speeches. So these divisive obstacle laying people speak well of you, they speak well to you, and you enjoy it, and you enjoy them, and all the while they're deceiving your naive heart. As they serve their appetites, which could be physical, financial, sexual, or others, they speak niceties to you, sucking you in so they can take advantage of you and get what they want from you. And people, well-informed, well-intentioned followers of Jesus, are sucked in and suffer harm and loss from it. No wonder Paul says to avoid these folks. They aren't just people who have some matters of doctrine wrong and need corrected. These people are snakes. They're wolves and they are predators who have come into the midst of God's people to exploit and pillage them in order to satisfy their own appetites. Avoid them. Next verse, 16, 19. What a great year that was, huh? I don't know. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I was a little bit puzzled at the placement of this verse when I first looked at it. Let's read 17 through 19 together. See if I can puzzle you with me. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Um, okay. So I had to wrestle a little bit. I had to noodle on this for a while. A couple cups of coffee. And I rub my forehead when I'm thinking, y'all. I'll sit here. That's why I see it's all the hair is gone. That just shows that I'm a very uh, consistent thinker. That's right. <laughs> so, in that context of 17 through 19, I get the second part about being wise to good and innocent and evil. But what about the phrase, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you? How does that fit in here? We saw starting in verse 17 that Paul was exhorting the Romans to watch out for divisive people and then he described them in verse 18 and then, for your obedience is known to all. Why? Let me give you a shot. Let me take a shot here. I think he's pointing out to them that they are Christ's representatives in Rome. That they are the very body of Christ and they're doing well at imaging forth the glory of God in Rome. For your obedience is known to all. Everybody knows the Roman Christians. They do it right. 
to the point that Paul has heard of it in Corinth at this point and is rejoicing over the reports of their obedience. Yay! The Romans are being obedient to Jesus. That's cause for rejoicing. But what if they get divided? What if they stumble and fall over some well-placed obstacles put there by those who do not serve Christ but their own bellies? How quickly do you think that news would spread? Huh? How catastrophic would their fall be? How much worse would it appear after they were doing so well? I'm going to throw out some names. Some of you are going to know these names. Some of you are not going to know these names. Jimmy Swaggart. Jim Baker. Ted Haggard, Josh Duggar. A lot of G's in those names. I just think Swaggart, Haggard, Duggar, Baker. He needs to be Bagger. <laughs> Jimmy Swaggart, Jim Baker, Ted Haggard, Josh Duggar. Maybe you know these names, maybe you don't. But all of these people are, or have been at one point, successful, visible celebrity Christians who had public scandals that had people jumping up and saying, Ha ha! Look at these Christians. Look at these followers of Jesus who are contacting prostitutes and scamming people for money and cheating on their spouses. Ha ha ha! Those Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. What a farce their religion is. Let me tell you something. Public platforms so often lead to public shame. And the higher the platform, the greater the risk for failure is. And when that failure comes, the greater reproach is put on the name of Christ and the church. So, Paul says, watch out for divisive, smooth talkers who could deceive you for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. If you fall, if you fail, if you misrepresent Christ, how big of an opportunity do you give the opponents and the questioning to call our faith a farce? This is a call to know the gravity church of what the function of the church is in the world. Listen to me. We are the body of Christ. We show Jesus to a lost and a hostile world. They are licking their lips waiting for us to fail. They are waiting to point out our hypocrisy. Why? Because unbelievers are pawns of the devil. You question that, go to 2 Timothy 2.26. We don't have time to do that today. But he says... They are held captive by the enemy to do His will. That's what unbelievers are. All of us were, and some still are. As such, as His pawns, they will pounce when we fail, especially if we are building a godly reputation and are visible in the culture around us. If we are speaking forth, proclaiming our faith publicly, oh, they want you to fail so bad. And when you fail, you're going to hear it, and so is everybody else. Have you told somebody you're a Christian? hope so. Have you told people that they can be Christians? Have you preached the gospel to people? If you have, I promise, they're looking for you to fail. They're looking for chinks in your armor. They're looking for lapses of reason or faith. And when you have them, and you will, they're going to pounce all over it. And if you don't, they'll make one up. And if you don't, they'll make one up. 
It's true. I'm telling you, that's where we live. And it's not, oh, poor, pitiful us. It's just the reality. The bigger the platform, the bigger the fall. Hmm. So, he's saying, be careful, y'all. Watch out for these folks. Because everybody knows about your obedience. And if you fail, oh, man, it's going to be bad. That's how this verse fits into this context. Watch out that you don't get deceived and fail for your obedience is known to all. And that's rejoice. That's worth rejoicing over. You're doing great, but be careful that you don't fall from such a height and thud disastrously to the ground, besmirching the name of Christ along with your failure. Now look at the last phrase in this verse. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. After encouraging them to realize what kind of impact it could have if they stumbled from their position of visible obedience, Paul encourages them and how they should live in relation to good and evil. And wow, there's so much here. He says he wants them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And by association, this would be true of God's desire for us as well. And what a concept here. Be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The thought is that we would know and be well informed in God's desire and requirements for us, which are good. It gets back to what Paul was talking about in knowing the good, clear, sound doctrine that he was bringing them through this letter. You want to be wise to what is good? Then focus your attention, and I would say your affection, on biblical doctrine. Be surrounded by it. Be soaked in it. Be steeped in it. I love 1 Timothy 4.15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. I love that picture of being immersed in what you've taught. Baptized. Totally, totally dunked under the water and just sitting there. Immerse yourself in the Bible. Immerse yourself in the doctrine. But, shouldn't we seek to understand how and why evil people do what they do? Don't we need some enemy intel? Some inside information? I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now the word innocent here is akerios. You're welcome. Translates as harmless twice and simple once. Unmixed, pure as in wines or metals, of the mind without a mixture of evil. Free from guile, innocent, and simple. The thought is that there is no mixture of evil in with your good in your heart and in your head. John MacArthur said he hears people say they go watch movies to see what's going on in the culture so they can be informed and know how to respond. What do you think his response to that was? Let me quote him. Quote, Oh man. You may go to the movies with a great intent to analyze culture, but you're going to lose your analyzing power when all the garbage comes running across the screen. He goes on to say, it would be a little hard for you to be coldly analytical. He goes on to say, somebody said, practicing sin only makes you better at it. And if you apply yourself to it long enough, it can find its way into your life. It dulls the acute sense of hatred of evil and cripples spiritual usefulness. He says, don't study false doctrine, don't study sin, don't study error, stick with the truth and godly obedience. End of quote. 
Paul said he wants the Romans to be innocent, simple, or just not familiar at all with what's evil. Don't jump in the sewer to see if it stinks. It does. There's poop in there. I wonder if it stinks down there. I don't know. Let's go see. Yep, sure does. Kind of like it though. Again, it sounds silly. But why in the world would we say, well, we've got to check this sin out? We've got to make sure why it's sinful. We've got to make sure that people understand why it's sinful, so we need to understand why it's sinful. Uh, hmm. Innocent as to what is evil. It does stink in the sewer. And listen to me, listen to me, that stink gets on you. If you're curious as to what evil people are doing, if you're curious as to what false doctrine is being taught, be very careful how you pursue that curiosity. I've heard on multiple occasions people talk about people that are trying to catch counterfeiters. They don't study the counterfeit bills because there's too many variations. What they study is the real thing so that they can spot a variation instantly. Oh, nope, this up here is wrong. That's different than the normal, than the plumb line, than the sound doctrine. I don't need to study false doctrine. I just need to hear them say what's false and I can recognize it because I know the true doctrine. I want you to be wise as to what is good and I want you to be innocent, simple, ignorant as to what is evil. Man, there's a, there's a ton of implications for us there and we don't have time to dwell there very much longer. Focus on the good so you can see anything that deviates from it. You don't need to study or pursue falsehood or evil. There's plenty of it out there. But you do have to be wise, informed, immersed in what is good so when the slick talker comes in and starts saying things that don't line up with sound doctrine, you warn him or her once or twice, then you tell them to hit the road with their evil ways and their false doctrine. Now hear me clearly, church. If you are here with a desire to gather a following to tickle your own fancy and you are teaching unsound doctrine, you will be spotted, you will be addressed, and we will separate from you. Period. Now whose job is that to sniff that out? Every single one of us. It's all of our jobs to be on the lookout for this activity. And it's all of our responsibility to avoid these smooth talkers and their evil ways. Now, last verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm so glad we sang God of angel armies. You crush the enemy underneath my feet. So here at the end of our passage today, Paul gives an incredible encouragement to his readers who may be afraid of falling prey to the evil around them. And listen, that is a very real fear that we have, isn't it? I'm afraid I'm just going to be overwhelmed by the evil. I'm afraid that maybe I won't be kept until the end. I'm afraid I might fall away. I'm afraid I might be deceived. Ha! Ha! Look at this verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
That's powerful right there. We've seen God be called the God of peace before in Romans 15.33. And the thought of him, Him being the God of peace is surely comforting. But an even more comforting thought is that this God of peace achieves this peace in a very peculiar way. We know that there's a war going on and this God of peace will ultimately win, right? Y'all know that, right? The question is, how will He do this? He will defeat His enemy in a very sure way. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. These are words of strength, of power, of promise, and these are words of war. And this is surely a reference to the prophecy given by God Himself in Genesis 3 to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Go all the way back to Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the head referenced in Genesis 3 could surely be, and I feel quite certain is, the crushing mentioned in Romans 16.20. And how does he achieve this goal of crushing the serpent, of crushing the devil's head? The God of peace achieves peace through a decisive war using a decisive weapon, his church. Satan was decisively beaten through the work of Jesus, dying on the cross, being raised back to life, and then ascending on high to the Father's right hand. But he was not finally beaten. He knows his time is brief, but he does have a brief time. And that final victory, that final defeat for the enemy, will come at the last battle, when Jesus comes back and wins the final victory. Let's go from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation 19, 11 through 14. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. Huh? <laughs> Who are these armies of heaven? Me! You! Us! The church. We are the armies of heaven marching into battle with the king to extinguish the dying flame of the enemy and he crushes Satan under our feet. It's God's people. It's the church. And when Jesus defeats Satan and his armies with the sword from his mouth, it is the church, it is the people of God who are with him and who are reigning victoriously with him. The God of peace triumphs through the final decisive war and he shares the victory with his people. (laughs) The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your 
And this is our final hope. This is the steadfast rock and the anchor that hold us in the greatest trials and the greatest fears. As the world and even our lives swirl out of control, we know that the end is as sure as the beginning. Revelation is as sure as Genesis was and is. The curse given in Genesis is surely going to see its fulfillment in the crushing of Revelation. God wins. And when He wins, guess who else wins? We win. And we reign with Him. We are in Christ. And all is made right as He is glorified throughout eternity as His church sings His praises and images forth His greatness in their eternal lives that redound with an ever-expanding capacity and ability to declare that glory to the universe which was made to show that same glory. Under your feet, church. Under your feet. He crushes the snake under your The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. By grace, through grace, and grace alone, He has chosen us as His means of achieving His end. And Paul calls on that grace to be with the Romans as he ends this section. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And to you as well, Providence Bible Church. Mm. So let's apply this. Let's bring it... Bring it together and apply it. Three W's today. Not P's, but W's. Watch, work, and wait. That's our application points. Watch, work, and wait. Watch. We have to be on the lookout for those who would divide us and deceive us for their own gain. And this is, I think, the main point of the passage. And our watch is based on the inerrant, perfect truth revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. We are to know them, these Scriptures, and understand them to the point that anything that is presented to the contrary of them is easily seen and identified as that which must be refused and the presenter be avoided. Again, after a first and a second warning. And I think knowing the Bible is the easy part here, truthfully. We've got that available to us in so many ways. But what about the avoiding? What about the separating from those who purvey these untruths for their own sordid gain? Let me ask you a question, church. Are you prepared to separate from those people and even those things that seek to draw us away from the purity of sound doctrine? If somebody pops up today at lunch, and start saying something. Makes you feel good, but you're going, I don't know if that's right or not. And we need to talk about that because I don't, I don't think that's, that's what we just read about. Oh, no, no. It's, it's all right. Are you ready to stand up for sound doctrine and separate from a person or people and avoid them? Are you prepared to withstand them to their face and then stay away from them on purpose? Why are you avoiding me? Because you preach unsound doctrine. You ready for that? I hope you do it to me if I'm ever preaching unsound doctrine. Hopefully I'll receive your warning and turn around. Are you ready to... What if it's a family member? Are you ready? 
Jesus said, I came to cast a fire upon the earth. And the enemies of a man will be those in his own household. You ready for that? What's more important? Are you prepared to separate from those people? Are you prepared to withstand them to their face? And again, it all sounds good and fine in theory, but when you talk about withdrawing from people and avoiding them on purpose, it gets a little tricky. We live in a culture that says anyone who claims to know absolute truth is arrogant and hateful. If you seek to be exclusive, which Christianity necessarily is, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The most exclusive claim in all of history. Are you ready to be ostracized by the culture? Maybe even by the church? Are you willing to withdraw from the culture and maybe even the people that you know in your church circles? If you seek to be exclusive in our culture, they say you hate people. You're talking hate speech. And that's magnified all the more when you understand that those we are called to avoid will so often come from within the church. It's mentioned time and again. I'm on three quick references here. 1 Corinthians 11, 13-15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a distress? That's the wrong verse again, y'all. I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. Let me read that. Everybody's like, oh crap, my hair. <laughs> That's awesome. 2 Corinthians. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I got this one right. Acts 20, 38, 28-30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Now be careful. These people are coming from within the church. And almost a direct echo comes in Philippians 3, 18-19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, or their appetites, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These are people in the church doing churchy things, saying churchy words, and they are to be watched for. They are to be spotted, warned, and then if necessary, avoid them. Point one was watch. Point two, work. This refers to being faithful in the position of God's representatives in the world, knowing our lofty position and working to ensure that we don't fall from that platform through willing or even ignorant sin. Paul said the Romans' obedience was known to all. This put them in a wonderful place of known obedience to God and a precarious place of being watched with a sinful world hoping they would fall and bring shame to the name of Christ. Listen to me. We stand on that very precipice ourselves. If we are bold in our witness and let the world know that we are followers of Jesus, that we believe the Bible and the Bible alone to teach us ultimate, absolute truth, 
then the world will be waiting and watching for us to fail and fall. So how do we respond? With biblical obedience, characterized by biblical knowledge and biblical deeds. And I mean to the extreme. We mentioned Paul's direction to Timothy earlier to be immersed in the things that he had been taught. In that same passage he says this, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's a pretty lofty claim, isn't it? And then he puts it to uh, 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, And from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred teachers, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So Timothy knew him from youth, and he said, Be careful and present yourself to God as somebody who will walk in these deeds as they immerse themselves in the teaching. And then he would tell them also, do your, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And to Titus he put it this way, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Let your conduct be such that when people talk evil of you, people go, nope, nope, (laughs) I know that guy. And you're lying. You're lying about him. 2 Peter 3, 8-13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Oh, that's not good thing yet. I'm jumping ahead of myself. We should work in such a way that people who seek to defame us are put to shame. Being a model of good works so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing, and the word is nothing, evil to say about us. So watch work and finally wait. Last point. You watching and working may not, be, may not seem to be benefiting you or others. Things may seem to be swirling out of control. It may appear that God has lost control and that the enemy has the upper hand, but wait. Wait. The sovereign God of creation and recreation has not resigned His position as King of kings and Lord of lords. Justice will come. Peace will come. Christ will come. And when He does, He will surely make all things right and He will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. You question me? Listen to what Peter says. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people... Ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Watch, work, and wait. Yes, wait. Wait with joyous, holy anticipation 
that you're watching and you're working and you're waiting will be rewarded in an eternity where righteousness dwells, where the God of peace has crushed Satan beneath your feet. And indeed, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us. And even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we can easily be overwhelmed by the task that is set before us to know your Bible, to love your people, to refute unsound doctrine, to not be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. We can be overwhelmed with that, and we should be. Help us to resign ourselves to your power, to your truth, to your design. And may we see your Holy Spirit rise up in us. And may we serve as conduits, pipes of holy power that pass into us and out through us. May we be able to withstand the divisive and obstacle-laying person in love to their face. And God, if need be, help us to avoid them. May we be on the watch for them, not out of fear, but out of confidence that you would have us to purge them from our midst. And may we work, may we live in such a way that the enemy has nothing bad to say about us. And anything that is made up is seen as falsehood because of our work, because of the way that we live. And may we not be tempted, God, to explore evil just to see if it is really bad. It is. And God, may you help us to wait. To wait for the day when you make all things right. And you judge all forms of evil. And we live in a kingdom where righteousness dwells. God, thank you for the promise that you will soon crush the enemy underneath our feet. We trust you. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Receive a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.